Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, October 19, 1974, the West Virginia textbook wars are entering a new period of acrimony, paranoia, and violence. There are so many twists and turns to this story, which is a fight over an attempt to introduce a new set of books into the local public school curriculum in Kanawha County, West Virginia. This is the county that includes Charleston, the capital of West Virginia. Um, I just want to characterize sort of where this story ends up. We'll spend a lot of today's episode talking about how it gets there. But in the end, what we're looking at is two men shot and injured on a picket line. An elementary school firebombed, another one dynamited, a school superintendent sprayed with mace and receiving death threats, a group of extremist fundamentalists led by a local reverend who eventually did jail time for a conspiracy to possibly bomb buses full of children heading to school during this boycott. That bombing didn't happen, but school buses were shot at and stoned. Uh, families were chased out of town. Uh, it is just an incredible moment all a result of these very heated wars over local school curriculum that also pulled in all sorts of other cultural and political wars taking place at the time. So here to discuss a really fascinating story, and I think listeners, you will agree, a very resonant story for this moment we're living in right now. Here to discuss that, as always, are Nicole Hammer of Columbia and Kelly Carter-Jackson of Wellesley. Hello there. Hello, Jody. Hey there. This story is wild, wild, wild. Bananas. Uh, I know I know we want to like get into all the sort of wild outcomes, but let's chart a little bit the beat by beat of how it got to this point. So, uh, you know, either of you can pick it up, but let's just start with basically why is this county basically saying we're going to take a look at our curriculum and try and introduce some new books? Uh, so basically in 1974, the town or the, the county board of education pitches uh, a new slate of textbooks. And these textbooks are coming from some of the largest textbook companies in, in the country. And still are. Houghton Mifflin and Macmillan um, produce a lot of textbooks across the country. And so they had decided that these textbooks were a little bit more modern and they wanted to incorporate them into the curriculum. Um, and they wanted school books that were intended to portray like more contributions of minorities and, and people of color. They range from including people like James Baldwin and his writings or uh, George Orwell novels. Um, 
and just had a range of topics that would make, you know, the curriculum a little bit more inclusive, we'll say. Uh, inclusive is a word that we use now, probably not word they use then. But a lot of people saw this happening, this this change, and they were not here for it. And no. they... <laughs> that is like a, to put it mildly <laughs> not here for it at all and and it starts off um with complaints and then those complaints that spiral into yeah. chaos and yeah. and just the reason that there's a look at the curriculum and an introduction of new books is that because there's a new set of legislation or is that because the cultural winds are shifting in some particular way like what's our understanding of why why this story even starts I think it's exactly that. I mean, it's one of the fruits of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, this idea you know, that you saw first on college campuses, that there should be black studies, that there should be women's studies, um, that there are all of these people who contributed to the development of the United States whose stories are missing from textbooks. And so they're starting to be included more and more. And there's a push, especially because you know, this particular county includes Charleston, which West Virginia is not a particularly diverse state. Um, but uh, Charleston is more diverse than other parts of the state. And so that black students in Charleston might have textbooks that reflect a little bit more of their history and their culture um, is one of the driving forces. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There's a there's a quote at the time that basically says that the, the charge here is that, quote, school books should portray the contributions of minorities to American culture. That seems so, yeah. you know, honestly, like pretty bland. Benign. Right? <laughs> yeah. And benign harmless. Um, and harmless. But, you know, that opens the door to, as you were saying, Kelly, introducing um, new authors, new textbooks. Um, I think part of what I think about in this particular moment is it's a reminder of how quickly the backlash to the civil rights movement mm-hmm. happens. We're talking about like five years later, people are mm-hmm. fed up and even the notion yeah. that let's be a little more expansive in our thinking um, starts to get wrapped up and, and radicalized and pushed in, you know, and, and again, in 2020, that happened in like a matter of months, right? But we see just yeah. see how quickly the backlash happens yeah. um, to any notion of a more expansive way of thinking. And the backlash is so absurd because it is not it's a response to someone might consider minor concessions you know what i mean like additions to a textbook don't seem like world changing don't necessarily put food on the table to create jobs or you know take dollars out of someone's pocket but it is the what people believed was propaganda paranoia about this being a slippery slope but the, the crazy thing about all this is that it often the cases when you have this kind of hysteria over books, most people aren't even reading. The oh, books. yeah. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> right. The books, but it's, you know? it's schools, right? It's kids, right? I mean, yeah. indoctrination, what's happening in our schools. We've done a few episodes about this. We did that episode of maybe right around the same year, a few years later about the girl who refused to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, but like schools are this perfect thing where people feel invested and extremely amped up because it's their kids but they are just opaque enough that you can convince yourself like there's this secret agenda going on and you don't actually see what happens day to day in your kid's school but you have a sense of it so it's just this, you know I, I just feel like schools are this perfect vessel for paranoia mm-hmm. and these larger mm-hmm. issues um that that may be swirling in the culture and the politics of the time 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is a period when backlash politics are happening around schools all over the place. It's this exact same time when in Boston, you have the protest over oh, busing yeah. and the school boycotts and the bus boycotts and the violence that breaks out in Boston in 1974. But you also have other backlashes happening at schools. You have backlashes in California over bilingual education. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have backlashes here in West Virginia on the same school board about things like sex education, um, mm-hmm. the lack of prayer in schools, and all of the, the this concern about, um, in the case of Evolution. Alice Moore, who we'll talk about, <laughs> of evolution, of teaching Ebonics. Um, there's this, oh, there's this, that is one of the things that draws Alice Moore, one of the school board, board members who um, helps to organize this protest in, um, in West Virginia. She's drawn in by this mix of religious and cultural and racist issues that commingle in almost all of the backlash politics of the 1970s. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's wild. It's the idea that, you know, I don't know how people make these intellectual leaps, but, you know, some of her fears were by the inclusion of adding Black authors that somehow they'd be teaching, quote unquote, uh, to speak in a ghetto dialect. You know, like the idea that you know, these books are un-American or, you know, you saw people with posters that said, I, I have a Bible, I don't need that dirty book. Like, it, it's nonsensical though how people rationalize um, their dismissal of the books. But it's also crazy to me just how violent this becomes. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's one yeah. thing to issue a complaint, but it's another thing. Next thing you know, like the clans involved. I mean, it's just, it, it explodes literally literally explodes um and how these people cannot seem to come to grips with introducing um i can't even say multicultural textbooks because this is not like the 90s where you get like the, (laughs) the decade of multiculturalism and all of that stuff like that's not, um, this is not Howard Zane. We haven't even come to that moment just yet of a people's history of the United States. This is, this is still before that, um, in which the history is still not great. You know what I mean? Um, what, what they are including is, is better. It's an improvement, but it's still not good history. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. And I think like for our purposes, I think in general, telling the story of this, you can sort of say like at some point what's in those actual books just becomes a total non-factor right, right? Yeah. as you're describing um though it's funny like james baldwin actually is always interesting to me because it's like i think the most uh acceptable parts of james baldwin are probably the books that are being put in here but there's actually some james baldwin that might actually get these people a little upset you know if they were the like, actually yeah if they were to actually <laughs> read james baldwin but you know again no one's reading this stuff uh who's upset about it people are glomming on these larger fears so let's talk about that and then get to some of the way that it it actually just spirals out of control. Um, I guess, Nikki, as you talk a little bit about the larger fears um, and the sort of rhetoric that, that, that accretes here, I think also it's necessary to also point out that there is a larger economic context here too. We're talking early 70s, um, West Virginia. There yeah. is a, a, a slow-moving economic depression coming. Industry, you know, coal mines yeah. are being shut down. There's st- people on strike, uh, people losing their jobs. Uh, these are all interconnected, and it's just worth pointing out that this fight over textbooks becomes a class war that's tied up in the loss of jobs and all sorts of other things that are going on in the, in, in, at the time. It becomes a way of making 
cross-class alliances among white people in West Virginia. I mean, look, most of West Virginia is white, but that there had been this um, deindustrialization and strikes at the mines. You have coal workers, um, coal miners going on strike in support of the people opposed to the textbooks. And it's partly cultural, right? It's partly because it's their children in those schools. Um, Although we're actually only talking about one county, it it becomes a statewide and a nationwide issue. But they also need to show that they have some power in negotiations with the mine operators. And so they're going on strike both to protest the textbooks, but also to show that if they go on strike, it will have an effect on the company's bottom line, which will help them going into negotiations. Um, Those strikes might not be something that white middle-class Midwesterners would support, but they will make common cause with them over the textbook. So it becomes this kind of savvy political move to create an alliance with people who might not otherwise be on their side. Mm. And these alliances get so big in numbers. Mm -hmm. You know, you have 10 thousand miners boycotting they shut down the city bus so that eleven thousand people don't have public transportation um and it effectively shuts down the school the school has to close for three days bring all the controversial books and then you know they call for a group of citizens and parents to to review the books they're trying to sort of restore um order but the protesters just keep ratcheting it up Another another notch, another notch. Right, because they start with these pretty common protest techniques. They mm-hmm. carry picket signs. They go to school board meetings and make a big fuss. Um, like a thousand people go to a, a school board meeting at one point. And there's a, a boycott at the schools. When schools start in the fall, 20% of the students don't go. Um, which is very similar to what's happening mm-hmm. in Boston with people holding their kids out from the buses. And then it escalates because it becomes part not just of state politics, but of national politics. You start to see the activation of this right-wing conservative organizing that's been happening for decades. And so the John Birch Society gets involved and the Heritage Foundation gets involved and the Klan gets involved. You start to have all of these different groups glomming onto this issue because they see the cultural and political power of it. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me, though, like how quickly the clan gets involved and then this becomes something completely else like there's nazi insignia that it's you know this uh, put out in school the school is vandalized 15 sticks of dynamite are like you know um used to to bomb the school um a federal grand jury indicted some women for conspiring to blow up schools this is what doesn't make sense to me and radio towers like why blow up the very institution like this if this is not about this is about a textbook like why blow up the school that doesn't make any sense why rob your children uh it's like if we can't have what we want nobody gets school it's It's so nihilistic and you know one of those those bombings that you're talking about blowing up the bus the idea was because the kids who were on the right, whose parents were on the right side, were boycotting the schools. Mm-hmm. If a kid was on the bus, then the kid was part of the problem. And so you can blow up this bus mm-hmm. and you'll only kill 
the the wrong people's kids or you only kill the right Mm -hmm. people's kids and it's so dark it's so nihilistic and it is of a piece with the violent opposition Mm -hmm. to integration right which was as much about attacking children as it was about attacking adults and institutions um and that gives you kids these are white kids i I mean not that it matters if they're any other (laughs) these are children period that but like but it's a big shift to attack white children but when you have this larger context and this and the way that it's morphed into a larger um, attack on institutions and government I think all these all this rational thinking that we've been describing here just goes out the window um, and so, so bombing a school is no longer I feel like a tactical step to try and win this particular war it is more an expression of just you know terroristic anger <laughs> um, uh, and you know Nikki I think like again the early 70s is the rise of this anti-government conspiratorial minded race and class melding together thinking that it's just a strain that we see all the way through to today yeah mm-hmm. i would add religion to that mix too yes. right because oh, yeah. um this is so much about race it's also about secularism it's also mm-hmm. led by all of these preachers who are teaming up with members of the clan um and just as you know segregation academies, these Christian schools were places where white people fled integration um, during the 1960s. Now you have all of those not only coming together in this pretty um, toxic stew in 1974 in West Virginia, but it's becoming mainstreamed. That's the big change that's happening, is that this isn't just something happening in the South. This isn't just something um, that's considered fringe, right? It's not the John Birch Society of the early 1960s. Now it's just mainstream conservatism. And there's a group of conservatives who are trying to harness this and use it to build... um, conservative majorities into the 1970s and 1980s, which they succeed at. Mm. But you can draw a straight line, a straight line from West Virginia to January 6th. Like, yeah. yes. the, the the actions, the rhetoric, the the vitriol is the exact same. And, and I think the political dynamic where leaders feel like they can play a double game, where they can use the language of a movement like this, uh, but somehow still separate themselves from the violent behavior and both support but keep at arm's length. And that's that's where you get true disaster and true tragedy is when people don't realize what is actually happening. And that, I think, is another place where it reminds me so much of what's happening now that like this feels like such a slow-moving tragedy mm-hmm. that I know it's hindsight, but even in real time, I suspect it just people saw where this was going. Like this is getting dark. This is people are people are angry, and maybe it's a small group of people who are angry, but they can do a lot of harm. And I just feel like that's so much of the pit of my stomach gut thing Mm -hmm. that's happening for me in the last few years and currently is just like seeing like we know where this is headed. This is only going to get darker, right? Mm -hmm. The the temperature doesn't miraculously just drop on its own, right? Uh, And this is such a reminder of that. And even when the temperature does drop, it only drops temporarily because the end of this story in 1974 is that bringing in the Klan, bringing in these um, violent terroristic attacks, there are a lot of middle class white people who are like, actually, I didn't sign up for this. I I don't want to I don't want to do this. Um, I liked the respectability politics that I was playing earlier. And Mm -hmm. so you do see this decline. Um, the textbooks get um, okayed, they get brought into the schools, sometimes in libraries, but there's a concession too that says parents don't have to let their children read any books that they disagree with morally or politically. And so there's a way that they kind of win the war, they increase the conservatism in these schools even as they're making um, changes. 
but the you get these flare ups again and again. You know, Kelly, you set a straight line to January sixth. There's a straight line to the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Yeah. I mean, this happens again and again, where for a brief moment there is um, a disqualifying violence. Right. Mm. Um, But militias continue to grow after 1995, after Charlottesville in 2017. That did not end the violent side of the right. It didn't end racism. It didn't tamp down um, the support for Donald Trump. So there's a cautionary tale in here, in addition to a story of decline. And it's it's what it's sort of textbook in terms of like, I'm taking my ball and going home. These communities start their own Christian schools, their own private, yeah. you know, Christian charter schools to basically have full autonomy in those schools. Yeah. Um, but that is that is what you see, not just in West Virginia, but all across the country. It's, well, if I have to send my kid to school with this, then I'm just, I'm going to send them to the private school or to the church school or the Catholic or school. school. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. homeschool, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we've been focusing on the, the violence side of this story, um, but obviously, like, the textbook war side of the story is super resonant as well now. And we have these fights over critical race theory and basically everything you don't like gets called crit- critical race theory. There is one sort of added dynamic and dimension to what's happening now in these textbook wars in you know, Texas and, and other places that I think is interesting, which is, Mickey, to your point about like maybe the specific battle and then the larger war what i see happening what seems to be happening in texas is that a lot of the language is going right to that bigger war and so it is like you know incredibly broad language is putting is being put into these bills under the guise of like out banning critical race theory now you have language that basically says like you know we can't question america's founding values right and so there's yeah. i think a recognition of the larger game in some of this that mm-hmm. is trying to draw start trying to paint immediately with the big brush as opposed to sort of fight the smaller war i don't know which makes me more despondent <laughs> but you know um but it is this remarkable thing where uh it's it's now like being taken to such a broad level to try and well, remake i think at a fundamental level like the kind of language and the kind of sort of understanding of what it means to talk about history in this country well, I think part of it, too, is that there's scholars and, and journalists who've talked about, like, the, the current CRT battles in the public schools are actually not all about um, CRT. It's more about the election and voting yeah. laws and keeping people hmm. angry enough so that when they go to the ballot box, they check, you know, yes. accordingly. So that anger motivates people to say, I'm so mad. Good vote. I'm going to fill you out. Like, so this is it's not a food about curriculum. It's more about control of the local, state, and even national politics. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Anything else we want to add to this story? Um, it is full of um, incredible details. We should shout out. I mean, like, this is one of those stories where... On the one hand, it feels like not covered enough, but on the other hand, there has been some great scholarship and some great reporting about this. I know, um, actually, in in 2010, um, APM, American Public Media, did a radio series that won a Peabody, and that was right when I was getting my start in radio, and I just remember that coming out and being really inspired by it, and I think I'm going to go back and and, and listen to that documentary series, but there has been some work on this, and you know, if if this spurs you to go read and and watch and listen, um, please. Uh, yeah, because the is... textbook war is ongoing. Yeah, well, that's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, that brings us to the end of the episode. Nicole Hammer, thanks to you. Thank you, Jody. And Kelly Carter Jackson, thanks to you. My pleasure. 
We didn't feel that NEA was in any position to be a negotiator for us. As far as they was concerned, they're our, our adversary. Because there's nothing here that they're going to be able to solve as far as the people's county is concerned. We want our, our schools back and we're going to get them back. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is, our democracy is broken. We can all feel it, and there's data to back it up, too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact, though? Money! You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us/podcast to find out more. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.